0: Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and locate Mark chapter 14 this morning. And I'd like to ask you to look at three intense scenes with me, would you? Found in this chapter. Three intense scenes that I think get to the heart of who Jesus is and what the gospel is all about. In fact, this. Set of verses. They're they're in Mark fourteen, and and for the next chapter and a half, we're really going to be within hours of the crucifixion, all the way up to the crucifixion. In fact, we're in sections of scripture that really uh, they they form the nucleus of the gospel. This is the core of of God's redemptive plan. It's right here. This is what uh, you know. We lead up to Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. This is the scriptures that really just highlight every bit what God was aiming at for thousands of years. And we look back on now. This is the part of Scripture that contains all this. And so many treasures await us, First Family. Some beautiful diamonds and nuggets of truth. So I want to encourage you not to miss a single week between now and especially Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday as we just see the gospel just every week just kind of lay out before us. And this week is no exception as we see these three scenes which show our sovereign king and our sacrificial king. So let me show you these three scenes from those two angles, all right? I'll look at them first of all from the sovereign angle, then we'll look at them from the sacrificial angle. Let's begin in verse 12. You follow along with me as I read and walk you through these verses. Verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, this is Mark 14, 12, When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, so we're looking at probably a Thursday, but however, it's a Thursday before six, Thursday late morning, early afternoon, we're in that Thursday time frame. The disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's the annual celebration all Jews participated in, in which they would remember God's deliverance of their people from Egypt. It's the Passover. And so they're celebrating it as well. And so he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Notice how intentional and um, specific he is in answering their question. You can tell he is aware of what will happen in the future. He has knowledge about it. He's prepared it. He says, you'll meet a man. You're to follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Don't you love the way Christ is just so uh, uh, specific in in preparing for these, these guys that he loves? He says, there you'll prepare for us. By the way, most biblical historians believe this large upper room is the same as the one in the book of Acts, where about 70 to 120 waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Same upper room. And if it is true, it's probably a room that was under the ownership of someone in the family of Mark, by the way, who wrote this gospel. So he's aware of that and he writes about it. Well, they set out and they went to the city and they found it just as he had told them. Surprise, Jesus knows, doesn't he? (laughs) And so they prepared the Passover there exactly as he described and predicted and instructed Well, that was good news, and so the supper begins. It's now evening, the Bible says, so it's after six o'clock. That's the Jewish time frame. And he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, and let me just pause there and say this. That's a phrase that would indicate this is a multi-hour meal, and the Passover was that. It was usually done in stages, and so here Jesus is now enjoying this, this meal with his closest followers. There may have been other folks gathered around on the outside of the of the table. The table was probably more like a U shape with the bottom of the U being longer than the sides. And they would kind of sit around that table, and most of them would probably prop up on one elbow. And then there'd be another one. And they usually sat in order of their, and I'll use this phrase, importance. I know that's probably not easy to hear, but they probably sat. It would have been Jesus and then maybe uh, Peter, James, and John. And, and so you'd have them kind of gathered that way. And there may have been folks in the room but who weren't around that table. And so this is the situation. They were reclining at the table, they were eating, and Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They begin to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I, is it I, is it I? Perhaps in tones that were just above a whisper, eyebrows raised, you can kind of sense the situation, can't you? He says it is one of the 12. And so I think that's indication that perhaps there were other folks in the room. He's signifying, by the way, it's one of the 12 around this table. He doesn't go any further than that because they all did partake with him in the cup and the bread. But he says it's one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Here's scene one. And we see both in a positive way and I would say a negative way, we make it say it like this, in a very wonderful way and in a horrifying way, we see the knowledge of Jesus front and center. He knew all about the supper that he was preparing for his disciples. He told them exactly how to go and where to get and how to prepare it, but he also knew what was to come. We'd say it like this, he knew of God's plan of fulfillment and he knew also of man's plan of betrayal. You see, Christ knew he was to be the Passover lamb. He wasn't just to eat the Passover lamb with him. He was to be the Passover lamb. But he also knew that there'd be one among them who would betray him. And so Christ's sovereign knowledge here is just very evident. That's scene one. We go to scene two in verse 22. Look at Christ's knowledge once again uh, being very evident. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, what does it show us in these verses that Jesus knew? I think he knew of the coming sacrifice. Notice the reference to his body and his blood being poured out, his body being torn, ripped. The word used is often broken or sacrificed. So he knew of the coming sacrifice, but he also knew of the coming kingdom because he says he will not drink of this until he drinks it new in the kingdom. And that's, I think, an explicit uh, reference to the resurrection. They're hearing about his sacrifice, but they're thinking, okay, you're going to drink this again with us when the kingdom comes? So that means you won't stay dead. The kingdom's coming. He had taught them to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So they were aware of this. And I think this is one of the things that Jesus knew. He knew he was the sacrifice in a few hours, but he would come again in the kingdom. Again, Christ's sovereign knowledge being just seen in these scenes. Seen in these scenes. Yeah, that works. Okay, we'll go with that. Look at scene three with me. Here's Christ's sovereign knowledge again. Again. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Probably a hymn that refers to one of the psalms that was traditionally sung during this time of the year. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Christ here brings in a quote from Zechariah to explain how this is going to take place in just a few hours. It is God's will to crush the sun, and yet, when he strikes the shepherd, the sheep nearby will be scattered. They're going to fall away. The word there is scandalized. Now, watch this. In this simple warning, we'll call it, he actually lumps them together with Judas, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, he doesn't lump them with Judas in a permanent way. Judas' decision to betray Christ was permanent, had eternal consequences. So the word there is different than fall away. He abandons. He deserts. He apostatizes, we'll call it. Here, however, they're scandalized. In other words, they have momentary shame. Like We don't know that man, but they do come back. But I think it's interesting how he does lump them all together. They're all having their moments in here, aren't they? I love the way verse 28 continues, though. He says, but after I am raised, so here's the explicit Reference to the resurrection. There was an implicit one earlier in scene two. Here in scene three, he clearly says, I'll be raised and I'll go before you to Galilee. So there's hope in that, isn't there? They're hearing that like, you're saying we're all gonna fall away and yet you're gonna go before us into Galilee later? So they're hearing of their frailty, yes, but they're also hearing of their future. This is something Christ knows here in scene three. He knows of their frailty, but he also knows of their future. Well, Peter, in his unique way, interestingly enough, disagrees with Jesus. That's a crazy idea, isn't it? Jesus here throughout these scenes is showing he knows what's ahead in every situation from the Lord's Supper to the sacrifice to their decisions and their actions, and Peter disagrees with this. After seeing Christ's sovereign knowledge on display in multiple conversations, he says, even though they all fall away, I will not, and look what Jesus says back to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, (laughs) before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. An emphatic statement that Peter, you think you're better than the rest of them. Because notice his words, if they all fall away. You can just see his finger pointing, can't you? You can just hear him saying, they might, but I won't. I'm Peter. And Jesus emphatically says, Peter, watch this. You're going to be the first one on this night Three times. I mean, wow. Blow me away, right? So looking at these three scenes, I think from the angle of the sovereignty of Jesus, we see that he knew. He was aware. He clearly understood what was ahead and what was necessary for his disciples. His sovereign knowledge is front and center. So we would undoubtedly say, this is God in the flesh. The sovereignty of God as seen in the sovereignty of Jesus. So yes, Jesus knew what was coming. Yet I find what's pretty striking and I think very comforting is that in the middle of all this, Jesus loved. Can I show you this in the same scenes? We've read through them. We've seen how Jesus knew. But can I show you how these scenes also reveal how Jesus loved? I find it especially uh, poignant in the second scene, verses 22 through 25. Are you there? It's the, it's the um, depiction and description of the Lord's Supper from Mark's perspective. And it's a pretty brief one, by the way. Matthew gives a longer one, so does Luke, and so does John. Mark's depiction's pretty quick, but even in this quick one, love is seen as a real foundation for Christ's action. Look what he says. He says, this is my body when he takes the bread Luke records him as saying, this is my body given for you. In regards to the blood, Mark records Christ as saying, this is poured out for many. So we can say this definitively about scene two in regards to Christ's love of his disciples. He loved them individually and yet he loved them collectively. Love is seen here in this this last supper very clearly because he's pointing to his sacrifice for them. Now, notice something about the text in a literary fashion. Watch this. And Mark does this several times in his gospel. He sandwiches Christ's example of faithfulness to his followers, of love for his followers, of loyalty, of steadfastness. He sandwiches that between two examples of unfaithfulness, of disloyalty, of unloving actions, of not being steadfastly committed. First of all, it's Judas who's gonna betray him, right? He predicts that, and then he predicts that the rest of them are going to follow suit. So don't you love the way Mark in this gospel highlights Christ's steadfastness, his love between these kind of bookends of people who weren't very loving at all, to be frank with you. This is one of the tools that Mark uses throughout his gospel. In fact, I'm going to write a book one day. I don't know what I'll call it, but maybe like the king of contrast, because I've just been... um, really intrigued by how many times in the Gospel of Mark you can find him mentioning one situation that's kind of negative, and he'll mention another one that's negative, and they'll be similar. And in between them both, he'll mention one really beautiful, positive one about Jesus. And throughout the book, he just continues to, to help us see Jesus in, in all of his beauty and glory and majesty by showing us, the disciples or the crowds, and all of our frailty and fickleness So Jesus here is clearly loving his disciples. So yes, he knows, but he also loves. In fact, let me just show you how love is seen in all three of these scenes. Just just, let me just mention this briefly. In scene one, and these are all connected to the Last Supper, watch this. In scene one, he loves them enough to prepare it for them. In scene two, he loves them enough to eat it with them. And in scene three, he loves them enough to pray with them after it. But all of these are kind of tied to his last meal with him and his love for them. Now, I don't base my contention that love is the real theme here just on Mark's account, though I think that's legitimate. There's a single phrase in the Gospel of John that really cements this for me. And I want to take a few extra minutes and show you this, because I think it's just a gorgeous nugget of truth in the Scriptures. Look over at John 13, would you, for a moment? Just flip to your right and put a finger on John 13 too. With your finger on John 13, 2, I want you to hear this, that John 13, 2 begins somewhere between Mark 14, 22 through 25, okay? You follow me? Somewhere in the second scene in Mark 14, where John 13 picks up. So John actually picks up the story of the Last Supper somewhere in the middle of this. And how does he introduce the Lord's Supper? It's verse 1. Look what he says. I love this verse. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, what's the next phrase, having loved his own who were in the world. And the next, man, just marvel at this. He loved them to the end. Do you know what's happening in the Last Supper? Jesus is to the very end loving his closest followers. He loved them from the moment he called them. That's what John 13, one says. But now at these crucial hours, just, just with the crucifixion, just right on the horizon, what's he doing? He's loving his own to the very end. There's not a single lapse in Christ's love. In the middle of betrayal by Judas and fickleness by the others, Christ steadfastly loves his disciples. That's why I say to you, in the second scene in Mark 14 is a beautiful picture of Christ's love. Now, let's stay in John 13 for just a moment. Let me show you this. If you read John 13, beginning in verse two, you're going to find that all of the next five chapters are pretty much what we call red letter text. You see that in your Bible, if you have those kind of Bibles? It's Jesus talking to his disciples during the last supper, by the way. And what does he say to them? You should read John 13 through 17. You'll find that he assures them in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. He says, I'll send you the Holy Spirit so you won't be uh, like orphans. He says, I- I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna pray to the Father. You'll be unified. He says, I'll, I'll have my joy abiding in you. I mean, the-, the whole set of chapters in this conversation that takes place in the Lord's Supper is Christ assuring them. He loves them. They'll be joyful. They will endure. It's a beautiful conversation depicting Christ's love for them. So let me say to you, church, love is the backdrop of the Last Supper, which means for us today, love is the backdrop every time we come to the communion table. Now, I want to pause here and just talk for a few minutes about communion, which began with Christ and the Last time he ate it with his disciples, but he commanded through the Apostle Paul that we continue this um, ordinance as a way to remember Christ and we're to do this until he comes, which this prophet, this uh, verse will come true. He'll drink it again with us new in the kingdom. We've prepared for you, uh, Pastor Travis, myself, on behalf of our elders have prepared this for you, a communion FAQ. It's not a deep position paper, okay? It's not even one at all, actually. It's just a FAQ. It's it's 10 questions that maybe you wonder about communion. I'd encourage you as you leave to pick one up. Um, It will help you understand not just about communion in general, but I think specifically why we do it the way we do it here at First Family. It'll have just some things in there that we think are prohibited, perhaps, some that are permissible, some that are areas of freedom. Just pick it up. It'll give you more insight into communion or the Lord's table, which is actually drawn from Christ's last supper with his disciples. Just know this, that we engage in this weekly to remember these hours and the backdrop for that every week is the love of Christ for his church. Back to Mark 14, can I show you one more place where I see Christ's love for his followers? It's in this final scene where he warns them, I guess you could say, of of their frailty, (laughs) and yet he assures them of their future. And can we just rejoice together in this? Aren't you glad that, that their frailty did not dismantle their future? And here's why, listen very carefully. It wasn't because they had some moral ability to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They didn't turn over a new leaf at the resurrection like, hey, we got this, Jesus. Here's the only reason their frailty did not dismantle their futures because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they were fearful disciples even in the upper room, just waiting day after day. But when Pentecost came and God's Spirit filled them, these frail disciples became the empowered apostles who laid the foundation for the church Wow, And I find so much comfort in that because I too, like you, am frail and fickle. But guess what God offers to frail, fickle followers? The filling of his Holy Spirit. And church, I wanna to say to you without any shame, without any apology, without any fickleness on this one, that is the secret. It's not in our cleverness. It's not in our campaigns. It's not in our wit, or knowledge, or smarts. The only thing that provides impact in ministry, and I'll use this word carefully, success in church, the only thing that really provides it is the power of God's Holy Spirit. So hallelujah, that even as frail followers, we can be filled, amen. Amen. And so these scenes looked at from the angle of of sacrifice show us that, that Jesus truly walked in the, in, down the avenue of sacrificial love. Again, they show us he is undoubtedly God in the flesh. Both his sovereign knowledge and his sacrificial love. Seen in these three scenes show us that, that he was the sovereign sacrifice for sinners. You see, Jesus, yes, he knew what was ahead, And he loved in that way all the way to the end. As I thought about this text and these scenes and kind of what emerges from them, it it reminded me in a small way, and and I want to be careful here because we don't do this perfectly as a a people, but it did remind me of the moments in which, you ever found your family just like, uh, everything ugly about your family just comes to the surface And you're in one of those moments like, there is no good. It's just all bad and ugly. You ever been in one of those moments? And you're you're seeing everything that you know is true. You're like, man, these are the people that own my last name. We're just a wreck. We're dysfunctional. We're fickle. We're frail. Is there anything good about this bunch? You know, you have those thoughts? You you can nod. It's okay. I know you have them. I was thinking about our moment in Wisconsin. We were left in Wisconsin campground after a vacation. My kids are somewhere in this room, but... We had to get a picture, you know. You got to get a picture at all your stops, right? Man, we were all mad at each other. I was mad at her. She was mad at me. I was mad at the kids. They were mad at me. They were mad at mom. And we were in this van, and and no one's getting along, but we were about to leave the campground. I said, er, we got to get a picture. Put on your smiles. So we run to the sign, and we're, and we're just like all cussing on the inside. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like that moment. All the All the ugliness of our situation was just, front and center for us to see. And watch this though, but but no one did not get back in the van. We all got back in the van. We drove home. We got in the same house and we're still wearing the same last name. It's funny that even in the middle of the worst situations where you know them better than anybody, you're like, man, these people, right? And yet you just hang in there with them. You don't bail. You stick it out. You're in. Jesus did that a thousand times better than you've ever done. In fact, Jesus did that and does that perfectly. He knows all of the ugliness about your life and my life, every bit of it. But He hangs in there with you. And here's what He does. He does not allow moments like that to dissolve his love. He allows moments like that to be platforms to display his love more fully. Because I believe you're never more loved than when you're more known. And in all transparency, most Americans run from this. You don't wanna be that known. Which is why some of you really aren't in a small group yet. You don't want to be that known. (laughs) I like the large group, but don't ask me to get in a small group. You mean conversation, confession, accountability? No thanks. And it's no wonder that you don't feel very loved because you feel as loved as you are willing to be known. And in Jesus, we are fully known and yet, watch this, fully loved. That's the disciples. He knew everything about them, and yet he loved them to the end. What a beautiful picture of Jesus in this chapter. And so I'm really just kind of left with with five words. Jesus knew, yet Jesus loved. That's our big idea today. That's what the text would show us in these three scenes. And the point of the sermon should be the point of the text. So I come to you with some beautiful news this morning. Jesus knew, yet Jesus loved. Will you say that with me? Jesus knew, yet Jesus loved. And can we just agree and admit this is really the gospel in five words? (laughs) Make no mistake, First Family, when Jesus went to the cross, he knew he was going to be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Yet he went to the cross and there he displayed God's love, his love for us. He finished the work there so that now anyone who believes can be fully accepted into the beloved, fully known and fully loved. That's Jesus. And I would say to you, this is not just a past observation. This is a current reality. So we would turn this past tense observation from our text into a present tense statement about where we live now. Jesus knows, yet Jesus loves. Man, I hope your heart is smiling. Jesus knows, yet Jesus Loves. Now, lest you think I'm just drawing that from this text and kind of saying, okay, I can see where you got that, but is that really true historically? Is that really an accurate principle we've seen through the thread of the whole meta narrative of Scripture? It is. I'll just give you two verses that really back this up, and they'll overwhelm you. These verses will lay you low, and rightly so. Here's how David would say the very same thing in Psalm 130. And just memorize these verses and man let them let them be signpost in your life. That if you, oh Lord, should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? If God were to line up your offenses and your sins and your violations against Him, none of us could stand. He knows them. And if He were to mark them, none of us would have a chance. But with you, there is forgiveness. <laughs> who deserves that? Who deserves to be that known? All their iniquities in front of God and yet for God to say, I forgive you. No wonder he should be the one that should be feared. How is this possible? God is not the cosmic overlooker, by the way. So who, who to whom are our iniquities marked? Jesus. He bore our sins, He endured our punishment. And so God marked Jesus for three hours on the cross with the sins of the world. He was the sin offering. And when Jesus said it's finished, God then said, I'll no longer mark iniquities to Justin. I'll no longer mark them to surrender. I'll no longer mark them to Julie. I'll no longer mark them to Ed. I've marked them and paid them in Jesus. That's why Jesus... God can look at us and say, though I know all of your iniquities, I will not mark them against you. I will instead forgive you. Hallelujah, church. That's how David would say, this is, this is what's true of God. This is true of eternal Christ. Paul would echo it in these words, Romans 5, 8. But God commends his love. He shows his love for us. In that while we were still, say it, church, sinners. I love the word still there, don't you? You didn't just start out sinning. you like, oops, I made a mistake. You lived, were born. This is, this is your existence. Your depravity is you. It's me. And God knows every bit of that. And in the middle of that depravity, of his full knowledge of your continued sinfulness, Christ died for us. Yeah, Christ, the sacrifice, the sovereign sacrifice for our sins, displayed the love of God so fully, even while God was fully aware of all of our sinfulness. So I would say what we see in Mark 14 has been echoed through the pages of Scripture from the time of David to Paul that yes, Jesus knows, but guess what? Jesus loves Will you let that drip over you for a little bit? Will you let it percolate? Will you let it weigh on you? Right now, where you are, will you let that press into your chest? Will you let it blanket you and wrap you? Will you let it soothe your soul? Massage your heart. We let it ease your mind. Oh, church, will you let that principle change your life? That Jesus knew, that Jesus knows he's sovereign. Yet, Jesus loves. Perhaps you're drowning this morning in a past loaded with sins that you can't forgive or forget. They dog you every day. I would remind you Jesus knows, yet Jesus loves. Maybe you're burdened with man made guilt, you're neck deep in expectations that you know you'll never meet. You're confident you'll never be good enough for so-and-so. Remember, Jesus knows, yet Jesus loves. Maybe you feel the consequences of your brokenness, the rippling effects of so many past decisions. You have no idea how to stop the cycle of hurt and pain. Guess what, church? Are you with me? Jesus knows, yet Jesus loves. Perhaps you feel trapped by overwhelming evil. You're so ashamed of what's been done to you, or perhaps what you've done to someone else, and you doubt if anyone could ever understand. Say it with me. Jesus knows, yet Jesus loves Maybe your life is so crushing that you've pondered just ending it. It's not even worth living. But you're so afraid to even tell one person. What would they think? Church, Jesus knows. And yet, Jesus loves. Maybe you've been trying so hard to be religious that you're actually becoming resentful. This treadmill is wearing you out. How much more... Here's beautiful news. Jesus knows. And yet, Jesus loves. And if you're wondering how much He loves you, I would ask you to fix your eyes on the cross where Jesus spread out His arms and He said, I love you this much that I will die for you. And in those hours on that cross, Jesus displayed fully the love of God in the middle of the full knowledge of man. And in this room this morning, there are many people who in the middle of their worst nightmare of sin, they turned to Jesus for salvation. They found the cross to be their only solution for their sin problem. And they put their faith in Christ, Jesus' death and resurrection. And God Wonderfully made them his sons and daughters. Yes, he knew all about them. And he loved them anyway. And he loves you too. And he wants you in his family. Would you trust Jesus this morning? Knowing that he f- is fully aware and knows you fully and yet loves you deeply. Would you run from every broken cistern and every man-made well? Would you drink deeply from the never-ending well of Jesus Christ to satisfy your soul's deep thirst? This is the one who knows you fully and loves you sacrificially. This is Jesus in Mark 14, our King, sovereign and Sacrificial. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.